One proverb I reference often enough is Proverbs 10.19. It says, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. This is particularly relevant for those who talk for a living. I would definitely include preachers. It would also include teachers, news reporters, politicians, podcasters, so on. When people are out in public, they guard their speech. They're extra careful with their words because they don't want to say something embarrassing. Or worse yet, in these days, they want to say something that will get them canceled. But when you talk for hours a day, it's only a matter of time before you just mess up. You stick your foot in your mouth. It's just unavoidable that with many words comes many transgressions. Some verbal flubs are embarrassing but harmless. President George Bush once said this in a speech. Direct quote. He said, there's an old saying in Tennessee. I know it's in Texas, probably in Tennessee. That says, fool me once, shame on, shame on you. Fool me, you can't get fooled again. End quote. Direct quote. You know where he was trying to go with it. Just didn't come out right. Bush was said to have been born with a silver foot in his mouth. Other times, though, verbal flubs are much more serious with lasting consequences. I remember this one where Michael Richards, the actor, played Kramer on the 90s show uh, Seinfeld. After the height of that show, went on to do stand-up comedy. But one night, Heckler got under his skin, and he was super impatient, and he just had this super racist tirade, which, of course, was recorded, and just like that, his career was over. And he went on to backpedal and explain, he didn't mean it. He's not racist. He, he just misspoke as if what he, he said what he said by mistake. But his response fell flat, as all such excuses do. No one buys that. Why not? Well, I mean, just think, is there really such a thing as meaningless speech? The truth is, you said it, which means you thought it. Where'd it come from? It came from inside you. Such words had to be inside you first if they're going to come out of you. It just reflects how some part of you believes what you said. This is why words can be as condemning as actions. They reveal who a person really is on the inside. In fact, you could argue all those careless, thoughtless words are actually more meaningful because they reveal what people really think. It's when all the filters are off and the guard is down, truth comes out. Now, we must be careful with too quickly pointing the fingers at others because who here has not been guilty of unedifying speech? With many words comes many transgressions. Who can tame the tongue? Is anyone blameless in speech, but then what does it say about our own hearts? It's a convicting thought. This whole area of speech is a massive one in the scriptures. It's one which the Lord Jesus had quite a bit to say during his time on earth as well. We're going to find that to be the case this morning, especially as he exposes the connection between the tongue and the heart. We're going to find that in our passage, Matthew 12, verses 33 through 37. So you can take your Bibles, open there now, Matthew 12. Verses 33 through 37. We found Matthew 12 to be quite a meaty chapter. Earlier, we just witnessed Jesus cast a demon out of the man, freeing him, healing him of his muteness and blindness. In response to that, what did the Pharisees say? It says in verse 24, the Pharisees heard this. They said, this man casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. They just can't stand the rising popularity of Jesus. And so they resort to the worst kind of slander to oppose him. But unbeknownst to them, they were not just opposing Jesus. They were opposing God and his Holy Spirit. So in response to this, Jesus teaches what some have called the unpardonable sin or blasphemy against the Spirit. Verse 31, he says after, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this age or in the age to come. Through all of his signs and wonders, the Spirit was clearly testifying that this Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. It's one thing to reject that testimony in unbelief and hardness of heart. That's bad, but that can be forgiven. But to know better, to behold clearly the light of Christ, but then to, to hate that testimony, to scorn on it, or scorn it rather, to spit on it, to even slander it as evil or satanic, goes too far. 
that represents a settled, hardened hatred of the light. And God's response to that is to forever remove the light from that person. They will never again find the place of repentance and therefore forgiveness. Now, we spend a good amount of time trying to carefully handle those two verses on the, the unpardonable sin, as mishandling them can do a lot of spiritual harm. We affirm that there is boundless forgiven, forgiveness in Christ, that anyone who repents can be forgiven of any sin. That's, that's a big deal. Those fully hardened in heart will never find the place of true repentance. True. But that doesn't affect God's promise that any who repent and turn to the Lord can be forgiven of their sins. That's good news. Now, though, we're moving on, and we made a big point out of the fact that this, this blasphemy against the Spirit, it's not some forbidden saying, as if you, you accidentally utter the wrong words, God will never forgive you. No, while this, this slander of speaking evil of Christ, it comes out of the mouth, we also found that it really comes from the heart. What he was really condemning was a heart condition. Jesus is going to affirm that and expand on that in the verses that follow, our verses 33 through 37. And the overarching point he makes is, you are what you say. You are what you say. In other words, words reveal the true nature of a person. A person's speech is a window right into their heart. And so let's see what the Lord has to say about this, this connection between the heart, the tongue, and then even judgment. Matthew 12, 33 through 37, listen along. He follows up his teaching saying this, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out, brings out of his good treasure what is good. And the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, it's not surprising that after dealing with the blasphemy of the Pharisees, that Jesus would then follow that up with teaching on the tongue. And maybe more than anything, speech reveals the true condition of a person's heart, as well as the state of their salvation. So we want to reflect on the Lord's teaching now. And in doing so, we're going to identify three connections that show us who we really are. Three connections that show us who we really are. The lesson it's not really be careful what you say. The lesson really more deeply is be careful who you are. It's just that who you are is revealed by what you say. We're going to see how that unfolds. Now let's start with this. Three connections. The first connection, what fruit says about a tree. What fruit says about a tree. Verse 33, it's pretty straightforward, but he says this. Either make the tree good and, the, and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. So he's continuing his response to this, this grand slander of the Pharisees, and his next response is, is to follow up with this, this maxim, very simple saying, self-evident truth, you might say. Everyone knows this. A tree is known by its fruit. But there's some correspondence between a tree and its fruit. Jesus made a similar point to this back in Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. There he was stressing how fruit reveals the identity of a tree. If you have two vines, they look almost identical. How can you tell which is the grapevine, which is just a, a worthless vine? Well, one definitive proof would be the presence of grapes. That tells you you have a grapevine. And Jesus said, well, that's how you identify true and false teachers. You'll know them by their fruit. Now, related to this, fruit can tell you the identity of a tree. Fruit can also tell you the condition of a tree, good or bad, healthy or sick. That's what he's getting at here. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. This also parallels what he said in Matthew 7, 17. So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. 
He's stressing there's only two trees, good and bad, clearly referring to two types of people. The term for good speaks of that which is profitable or useful. The term for bad speaks of that which is spoiled or rancid. Some trees are, are useful, some are worthless. But the point of this image is you, you can't always tell, just by looking at them, you can't see the roots. They might look somewhat the same on the outside. You'll really know them, though, by their fruit. It'll be the dead giveaway if this tree is good or bad. It just so happens, whenever I find myself teaching on the Lord's many fruit tree analogies, uh, he always supplies me with some personal illustration on this fact, usually from our own gardening trials and tribulations. And so we have another one. A couple years ago, about two years ago, we planted a nectar plum tree. The nectarine plum hybrid might be the, the most delicious fruit ever. So it's amazing. But last year, after we were inundated with rain, the, the roots probably got saturated, but the tree developed a, a fungal infection, so on the, the leaves were all these little lesions. And then the fruit were really deformed and mangled. It, you did not, it looked like you would not want to eat that. And we couldn't see the roots under the surface. They're probably rotting from too much water, but just that the bad fruit that emerged was proof enough the tree had turned. It's now a bad tree. Well, the point is fairly obvious that a tree is known by its fruit, whether good or bad. Christ is the master teacher. He takes the known and the familiar and uses them to reveal the unknown and the unfamiliar. And so, once again, he's drawing on this familiar tree-fruit analogy. This time, though, to say less about false teachers, he's actually saying something about himself. How would you describe the fruit of Christ's ministry so far? Well, when he encounters someone who's blind, he cures them. They're no longer blind. When he finds those who are deaf, he restores their hearing. The demon-possessed are freed, and even the dead are raised. We find that all manner of sickness and affliction are just banished in the wake of Jesus passing through town. Okay, so would you call all that good fruit or bad fruit? Okay, that, that's good fruit. We'd say that, that's the best fruit. Does it, does it get any better? All right then, so what does the fruit of Jesus say about him? What, what kind of tree is Jesus based on his fruit? It's a good tree or bad tree? My, my five-year-old can answer these questions. He's a good tree. So shouldn't this conclusion be obvious to all that this Jesus guy, he is good? And therefore, shouldn't the, the ridiculous slander of the Pharisees be so obviously false that Jesus is satanic? He's an agent of Satan. That's what they were saying. Remember their accusation that started this whole response from Jesus back in verse 24. They just witnessed this, this deliverance, this healing. They said, this man casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. They couldn't deny his power. They could only slander the source of his power. He's, just, he's working by Satan. But you see that the point Christ is making here in this response is that his deeds are so patently good and obviously good, that to suggest he, the source, is evil, even satanic, just makes no sense. Jesus is very happy for all people to judge him by his fruit, his works, his deeds. Go ahead, make all your conclusions about him based on his works. He's happy. Because as he does nothing but speak the truth, and miraculously help people, his works testify he is from God and of God. You see this refrain, especially in John's gospel, where we see Jesus often telling people, telling them to judge him by his works, the signs he performed. These were the Spirit's signs that this Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. For example, John 5.36, Jesus says, The works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me, that the Father has sent me. John 10, 25, Jesus said, I told you, and you do not believe, the works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. It says in John 10, 37, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. The one more, John 14, 11. He says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. 
Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. A.K.A. a tree is known by its fruit, and he's happy to be judged by his fruit. And regarding the fruit of Jesus, it, it's a slam dunk case. He, he is a good tree. More so, he, he's the divine Messiah. It's, it's obvious. And so regarding these Pharisees, to so clearly see this fruit, the fruit of Jesus, his works, his signs, and to slander them as satanic, you can see how that truly is a brazen blasphemy representing such a darkened heart. Speaking of which, regarding the Pharisees, would you not say their speech of blasphemy, that, that's their fruit. That's the fruit on their tree. So what does their fruit, their blasphemy say about them? What kind of tree are they? Well, he's going to piece this together in the second connection. Number two, what the mouth says about the heart. A second connection, what the mouth says about the heart. Look at verse 34. He says, you brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So Jesus now focuses all of his attention directly on his accusers, the Pharisees. He switches metaphors from plants to animals. They were a brood of vipers. These guys are they're worse than a group of bad trees. They're a brood of vipers. Vipers were, were deadly, poisonous snakes. They were also deceitful in that they would blend right into branches and you could unknowingly grab one of them, which the Apostle Paul found out when he was shipwrecked. These religious leaders were just as deceitful and deadly. You know, Christ doesn't just call them vipers, but a brood of vipers, a collection this might coincide with what Jesus says of these same people over in John eight forty four, where he said, you are of your father, the devil. Satan is that serpent of old. They're, they're his brute. He's the great deceiver, the ultimate imposter of God. Far from being true sons of Abraham, Christ said, they're, they're sons of their father, the devil. He's the father of lies. And they're just like him. They accused Jesus of being an agent of Satan, but in reality, they were the ones doing his bidding. And only wrath is coming for the devil and his followers. Much of what Jesus says here, he seems to pick up this language from his predecessor, John the Baptist, who said it first. Matthew 3, we saw back in Matthew 3, verse 7. Speaking of John, it says, When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He says, therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You see, the Pharisees had this veneer of religion and morality. But their hearts were far from God, and the crystal clear proof was the lack of good fruit. The fruit that accompanies genuine faith and repentance is never found on their trees. And if that never changes, they will only be fit for the fire. Now, these words of Jesus might sound harsh. They make people uncomfortable because we like Jesus being all love. It makes us uncomfortable that he actually talked about judgment way more than heaven, for example. But you have to remember, Christ himself is perfectly righteous. He, in fact, is the judge of heaven and earth. It's his prerogative to judge. And by his perfect judgment, the Pharisees were found evil. He says, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? They were not aligned with God and his purposes. They were aligned against it. They were much more in alignment with their father, the devil. How can he call them evil? What exactly made them evil? We could ask, what bad fruit showed up on their tree, showing them to be evil in heart. Well, later in Matthew 23, Jesus will pronounce a series of eight woes on the scribes and Pharisees, and there he identifies some of their bad fruit, which would include their deep hypocrisy and self-righteousness. He says in 23, 28, you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You know, being self-deceived, it also made them deceivers. 
as they spread around their false teaching, the false way of salvation. So he says in 23.15, they go around from town to town just to make one proselyte. And he says, when you do, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. That's what he said. They don't serve God. Just as their forefathers murdered all the prophets God sent to them, he said, you would do the same thing. In fact, they're just about to murder, crucify the Son of God. This is what leads Jesus to say in 23, 33. He says it again, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Rejecting Christ, the only Savior, they won't, they can't. Now here in Matthew 12, the, the bad fruit that Jesus has in mind the most is their blasphemy. This, this speaking evil of the Son of God and, and the Spirit of God behind him, which we just saw. But he's like, it's only expected. They're, they're evil in heart. So, of course, they're going to speak evil. Jesus expected nothing good from them. As he said, good, good, tr- uh, good fruit does not come from bad trees. Their true nature was being revealed not just by their deeds, but by their words. That's verse 34. It says, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. This is another oft-repeated teaching of Jesus. He identifies the heart as the source of all of our deeds and even all of our words. It's coming from inside of you. It represents who we really are. We'll see it again in Matthew 15, Matthew 15, 18. Christ says, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. And you all know when Jesus references the heart, he's not talking about your bodily organ. It's metaphor referring to just the center of your being, who you are on the inside, your your mission control center. This is who you are as a person, which most cultures have associated with the heart. We use the heart to represent who we are on the inside. That's what Jesus means, your your inner man. And in turn, what, what comes out of your mouth is just the overflow of whatever is in your heart. Who you are on the inside will come out in words. You all have this picture, even with Lake Lopez this year, of a, a dam filled with water after weeks of torrential rain. The lake is full and water is spilling over the dam. Likewise, whatever is filling up your heart, it's just going to spill out of your mouth. It's just how it works. You can try as hard as you can to hold some things back. And like a dam, people try and just keep certain words, certain thoughts from getting out. But all dams have their breaking point, and so do people. And so the, the anger you have towards someone will eventually escape in hurtful words, vengeful words. Impatience will eventually come out with frustration, name-calling, envy or malice. It's going to eventually come out as gossip and so on. We've all heard the advice from our grandmothers. If you have nothing good to say, don't say anything at all. And it's excellent advice. I've just never met anyone who has been able to keep it. Especially those who need to hear the advice the most, they just can't do it. The heart betrays itself through the mouth, and who can tame the tongue? Now, primarily in context, Jesus is saying this to make a point about the Pharisees. They've already shown themselves to be bad trees by their bad fruit. And so he wonders now, how dare they pretend to speak good things? Being evil in nature, how could anything good come out of them? Evil cannot produce good, certainly not to the glory of God. He elaborates on this in verse 35. He says, The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man out of his evil treasure what is evil. What he means here is all people are going to speak according to their true nature. You probably recall the fable of the scorpion and the frog. There's a scorpion who wanted to cross a river and asked a frog to carry it across. The frog was hesitant, fearing the scorpion would just sting it. The scorpion promises it would never do so, and if it did, I mean, they both would drown. And that the frog was convinced that's reasonable, and so agreed to take the scorpion across the river. But midway across the river, the scorpion stings the frog, dooming them both. 
And the dying frog then asks the scorpion why you would sting it, knowing we're both going to die. And the scorpion replies, I can't help it. It's in my nature. The same thing is going on with the Pharisees here. They're, they're evil and darkened in heart, corrupt in nature, even though they just witnessed the glory of God put on display through Christ and his wonders. They, they can't help but speak evil words, dark, blasphemous words. It's just it's who they are. In verse 35, Jesus next likens the heart to a storehouse. The word for treasure here in verse 35 is thesaurus, from which we get the word thesaurus, which means a treasury of words, a storehouse of words. A person's heart is the treasury of their thoughts, desires, lusts. It's a reservoir of what a person truly wants, or we might say worships. That could be good or bad depending on who sits on the throne of their heart, whether God or self. But the point is, whatever is in that storehouse, it's going to eventually be brought up and brought out in speech. Or as Spurgeon said, whatever is in the well comes up with the bucket. Now, there's an interesting play on words I mentioned briefly here in verse 35. is this verb for bring out, right? That The Greek term is ekbalo. It's actually the same word used everywhere for casting out demons, to to cast out. The word normally just refers to throwing something or casting something. Hence, you know, casting away a demon or you're like throwing it out of the person. And Jesus just used the same word after verse 24, four times, to speak of him, you know, bringing out, casting out a demon. So now consider this, this play on words. Jesus just, you know, brought out of his storehouse the good fruit of bringing out a demon. He brought out good fruit from his good treasure. Meanwhile, how did the Pharisees respond to witnessing this? The only thing they could muster to bring out was slander and blasphemy, proving that their storehouse is evil. They spoke evil because their hearts were filled with evil, And while trying to condemn Jesus with their words, in reality, they only condemned themselves with their words. Their words were that that telltale sign, the proof, oh, that's a bad truth. They only condemned themselves with their slander. Now, that's actually a huge point with bigger implications for for us, for the human condition. Before we dwell on that, though, let's just finish with this third connection that Jesus draws finish this passage up. Number three, what speech says about salvation. One more connection. What speech says about salvation. Verse 36, he says, but I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. So the judgment that was implicit back in verse 32 is now made explicit. Jesus has, again, so much to say about the coming day of judgment. It's a day when God will sit upon a great white throne. Revelation 20, verse 11 says, The dead will will stand before him, and they will be judged according to their deeds, which were written in the books, it says. And all will be made to give account for their life and all the choices they made, All the ways they did evil and violated the will of God, which is the definition of evil. Are you prepared for that day? Verse 36, the verb for giving an account, speaks of just giving something necessary to fulfill an obligation. Same word is used of repaying debt, like that slave we found last week in Matthew 18 who owed the king basically an infinite debt such as our, our sin debt before God. And we know we, we cannot repay this debt. And so if anyone is found without the Savior's payment, all that's left for them is hell. The day is coming when God will settle accounts with all people. It's just like Peter says of those pursuing wickedness, 1 Peter 4, 3 through 5. Or just really verse 5, he says, They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. All will give an account. Now, this God, he's qualified to be a perfect judge because he's omniscient. He sees everything. No deed is hidden from his sight. 
But Jesus is adding here, this God also hears everything. No whispered word goes unheard. Even your speech will be part of that accounting. And we know there are various categories of sinful speech in the scriptures, from slander to gossip to abusive speech to blasphemy. That's kind of what we expect Jesus to say here because the Pharisees just blasphemed. So we expect him to say this, like, I tell you that every blasphemy that people speak, they shall give account. But he takes it so much further than just blasphemy when he says, verse 36, I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they'll give an account. Every careless word will even enter into that judgment. That's kind of a terrifying thought. What what does that mean? Well, the Greek word for careless, argon, it literally means not at work, like unemployed. That's where we get the, the idea of idle speech. But it's talking about words that don't do anything, words that don't mean anything, nothing good, that is. These are worthless words. It's all the passing remarks we make without even thinking about. We all know that lying is wrong, but sometimes we create this artificial category of of white lies, telling ourselves, oh, not so bad, or so the flesh deceives us. And so you might find yourself lying all the time under the guise of like, well, it's just a white lie. Likewise, with speech, we all know like straight up gossip and slander, like, well, that's wrong. But under the guise of joking or making small talk or sarcasm, we say unwholesome, unedifying things all the time. It's estimated that on average, people speak anywhere from 7,000 to 20,000 words a day. And I wonder how many of those words are worthless, like idle speech, worthless words, unedifying speech. I don't know the number, but I'll tell you, God knows the exact number. And the point here is even these smallest verbal offenses are great offenses to him, and they will be called into account. That that should show you the magnitude of God's holiness. Nothing is small to him. It also shows you the deadliness of the tongue. This this explains James 3.6, where James says, The tongue is a fire the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. I kind of get that. <laughs> like we, we get that. Now, what you say matters to God and will be called into account. And so what Jesus says here culminates with this, verse 37. He adds, For by your words you will be justified, And by your words, you will be condemned. Now, we have to clarify what this means. You might wonder at first, is Jesus teaching we're saved? We find salvation by, like, saying the right things? We're justified by works or justified by words? What does this mean? We need to first understand this word justified has a range of meaning. Two meanings are prominent in the New Testament. First is where it's used to refer to a declaration of righteousness. You're declared righteous. This is how Paul especially uses the word as a declaration of righteousness. We are we're guilty sinners before God. We're not righteous. But the glory of the gospel is that by the death and resurrection of Jesus, we can be declared righteous, given his righteousness as a gift, and that's what makes us right with God. That's all the gift of his grace. This is why Paul boasts in Philippians 3.9, He boasts that he is found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That's why we say we're justified by faith, not works. Now, at the same time, there's a second way this word justified is used, not as a declaration of righteousness. Sometimes it's used as a display of righteousness. This is how Jesus and his half-brother James use the word. This explains James 2, which says we're justified by works. That's very clearly talking about in context the proof of our salvation, the display of our justification. Righteous deeds don't save us, but they are the necessary evidence we have been saved. And look, here in Matthew 12, with all this context of trees being made known by their fruit, it's pretty obvious that's what Jesus means here. 
We already made the point that our words count as fruit in judgment, whether good or bad. Words are part of that. And here Jesus is affirming that as fruit, your words will be admitted as evidence into the grand court on the last day. Along with the fruit of works, words will be used to reveal the true condition of a person when they stand before God. That's what he means. We know salvation only comes one way, by faith in Christ, by being in Christ by faith. But you see, there's a lot of people who profess faith in Christ, but you're not saved by a profession of faith. You're saved by possession of faith. They're not always the same thing. We know from Matthew 7, 21, more than a few people will use their tongues to confess Jesus as Lord. They have a profession of faith, but he still sentences them to hell because they never actually possessed faith. It was a false profession, and they're cast away. So how will the Lord reveal who merely professes faith and who actually possesses faith? You will know them by their fruit. In Matthew 7, it was their deeds which gave them away. As Even though they called him Lord, he says, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Just that the catalog of their life was unrepentant lawlessness. Never repentance. No, never the fruit of repentance. But now Jesus is revealing that it's not just your, your deeds that will reveal who you are. It's also your words that will show good tree, bad tree. Your words count just as much as your works when it comes to revealing the state of your soul. Now, in this context, what Jesus says here serves as a strong warning, even a condemnation for the Pharisees. They're the direct recipients of these words. You might imagine them backpedaling after Jesus goes on this diatribe saying like, well, you know, we actually didn't mean this whole blasphemy against the spirit thing. This has gone too far. We, we just were thinking out loud. We were, it was a mistake. We didn't mean it. It's just like recently after the October 7th Hamas attacks on Israel. Like, I think the next day, if all these Ivy League professors and students releasing statements immediately coming out in support Palestine and Hamas, pretty wild, but then they quickly felt the blowback as scores of employers vowed to not hire any of the students who signed those statements, and then you saw all the backpedaling. Well, no, no, we didn't mean it. I, I just signed a group statement, didn't know what I was doing. But it doesn't work like that. You said it, came from the heart. You might say it, it's just meaningless speech. These are careless words. But haven't we found that such meaningless words, they might actually be the most meaningful when it comes to revealing who we really are deep down. Because when all the filters are off, who you really are comes out. You can't get away from such words so easily in this life, and you can't get away from them at all in the next. God will hold all to account for every word. Now, this word of warning does not just apply to the Pharisees, though. You can see in verse 36 how Jesus broadens his audience, where it's not just careless words that the Pharisees speak. He's talking about careless words that people speak. He switches to the second person plural, you all. Having established the connection between the tongue and the heart, you too now should consider what your speech says about your salvation. Now, when you read and study a passage like this, I hope your mind does not immediately gravitate toward others. I hope your first thought is not, oh, and so-and-so really needs to be here and hear this. They really need this message, and they need to change their ways. No, you should just bear the Holy Spirit's conviction now in your own heart and ask yourself, what does your speech say about you? Your words talk, and they testify who you are in your heart of hearts. That right there should be convicting for all of us because no one is without sin in their speech not even close, who's never uttered a word that has torn others down or slandered or or put down, gossiped. And then just to ramp it up, you know, what about all these careless words, these these passing, thoughtless remarks? There's got to be tens and tens of thousands of these. I mean, can, can we go a week, a day even, without sinning with the tongue? What do we make of this? Look, quickly go to James chapter 3. We, we have to reference James who answers this, we see how James so much plays off of the teaching of his 
half-brother Jesus in his epistle. And he reminds us of just the destructive power of the tongue. We already read verse 6, but go back to James 3, 5. He says, so also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity, he goes on. And the, the tongue is just full of evil. But wait a second, we learn, like, what does that say about us then? It means, as we keep speaking evil, that there's still evil inside of us. Paul would affirm this in Romans 7 and 8, it's in the flesh. It's the principle of evil, it's still within us. Even after salvation, the flesh remains. But James similarly then captures this, the double-mindedness that comes out of us. Look at verse 9. He says, regarding the tongue, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing, my brethren, these things ought not be this way. I very much appreciate how James includes himself in this assessment. He says, we, us. But look, we are all double-tongued. James affirms, it ought not be this way, but it is. It still is. He adds, verse 8, he says, no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Back in verse 2, he adds, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Haven't met that person yet. The reality is, in this life, we will not master the tongue because the flesh remains. Spirit is willing, flesh is weak. There will always be a source of evil thoughts, desires, and lusts within us, and they'll get out. So what do we do about this? Are we just, just left to the judgment the Lord speaks of, or we'll all be condemned by our words, and that's it? And can we have any assurance of salvation, since we're all far from perfect in our speech? How do we, how do we reckon with this? Well, we would be remiss if we didn't include the good news. We know the bad news is that we are all guilty before God. I mean, just sticking to the category of speech alone, if God... God would find sufficient reason to judge the world just by speech, and all mankind would be guilty. If you were made to stand before God, you could not give an account of your speech. You and I would be guilty as charged. By your words, you would be thoroughly condemned, unrighteous. But we know the good news God has prepared. The message here is not, you need to reform your speech. Change your ways, you need to say more good than bad, and you need to make up for all those bad things you've said to go you know, positively affirm everyone. Look, that's, that's just a hopeless message. You cannot tame the tongue. You're not going to tame the tongue. The Lord knows this. He knows our fallen condition, how hopeless we are to save ourselves or change ourselves, and we do need both. But this is why he sent his son Christ to this world to save us. The Savior, Jesus, you know, he once walked the earth. And on earth, he was sinless in all ways, which means he's the only person who never sinned in speech. That alone doesn't prove him the perfect God-man. What else would? But he was righteous in everything he did and said. And it is, again, it's that real treasury of righteousness he gives to us. He grants to us. You know that on the cross, Jesus died to bear the full weight of, of our sin. And that included every careless word, every blasphemous word, every slanderous word, every hurtful word. He died for that too. All of our guilt was placed on him. He paid the full penalty and rising again. Now those who repent in him, repent of it all, words and deeds, and trust in him, well, they're granted pardon. And that Christ is the only way of escape from this judgment and is the only entrance into eternal life. You know, I mentioned the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20, the final judgment, how the dead are judged according to the things written in the book, the book of deeds. There's actually two different books mentioned in that judgment. Next to the book of deeds, there's also the book of life. And you can imagine God flipping through the book of life. It says this, Revelation 20, verse 15. It says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, 
he was thrown into the lake of fire. The book of life is populated by those who, in, who are in Christ. Those who have humbled themselves before God and, and counted Christ to be their only hope for right standing before him. But those who refused him, those who persisted in their rebellion against God, their names were never enrolled in this book. And that means at judgment time, they do not have Christ the advocate to defend them by his finished work. I mean, they've got to give an account for themselves. And so they will be judged by everything written in the book of deeds. Their deeds, their words, they will give an account and they will be found wanting. We don't control the book of life. God writes it by his calling and choosing. But know by this promise that those who genuinely repent and believe in his son can have full assurance their names are there. If we were to gather a takeaway from the Lord's teaching this morning, it would be this. Be careful who you are. Who are you? What is your true identity? Either in Christ or not. What's your true condition? You're still dead in your sins or you're born again, made alive. For your eternity hinges on your relationship to Christ. And I pray that you have made him Lord and Savior. And that you know who you are. That you are a great, unworthy sinner. Proven a million times over by your speech. But one saved, pardoned, changed by the grace of God. Through Christ's death, your faith in him alone. That's who you are. But it's fair after that to examine your words and works to see, is there any evidence that your faith is real? It's, it's a real possession. We're commanded to do this. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, test yourselves, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. That's a good thing. Do you profess faith? Do you actually possess it? In this examination, you're not looking for perfection. That awaits glorification. The flesh remains, but you would look. Do you, do you wrestle the flesh? Are you alive? And coming alive, do you now hate sin? You fight it. You love what God loves. Do you see any good fruit growing on the tree? Does, does some of your speech fit the fruit of the Spirit? Kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And when you stumble, and all the times you stumble, is there a pattern of unrepentance? or a pattern of repentance and renewal. We know that we ultimately gain assurance just from our faith in Christ. But you should see some evidence by your works and your words that your faith is real. It's a real possession. But be careful who you are, and I hope your faith and your fruit affirms your faith in Christ. Now then and only then can you apply a second takeaway, which would be to be careful what you say. But as believers now, we want to be careful what we say. Not, not to earn salvation, but to show it and display it and grow in it. Be careful what you say. It is a terrifying thought to think that every one of your careless words would enter into judgment and be called to account. Like we know the good news for the believer, they will never see that judgment. They will not be at the great white throne. That judgment is not for those in Christ. He's already put away all our sin. That fact alone should be enough to compel us from the inside out to want to honor God with our speech. We know we've been bought with a price, therefore we should glorify God with our bodies. Does that not include the tongue? So take care to use them well. You all know that the classic verse on speech, Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. But I hope you take it to heart. You write that on your heart. We, we don't want what comes in the next verse, Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Our sinful speech does not unseal us or unsave us, but we don't want to dishonor the Lord. We don't want to grieve the Spirit. We don't want to tarnish our own testimony. And so we must grow. How practically do you grow finding sanctification in speech? You can try the external route. You can get a swear jar. You can try and put a filter over your mouth. I don't think they make strong enough filters. I mean, haven't we learned, like, whatever's inside you is just eventually going to come out. We need self-control. But you realize even self-control is a fruit or result of the Spirit's work in your life. 
There's only one real way to do this, one path to grow in Christ-likeness, because now we want to be like him, is to walk by the Spirit, which dovetails perfectly with what Jesus taught in verse 34. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So you want to get practical, and you want to see better things come out of your mouth, well, consider putting better things into your heart. Practically speaking, whatever you're putting in your storehouse comes out. So then ask yourself, what is filling your heart, mind, and soul? What words, images, and thoughts are you taking in? What are you setting your mind on? This affirms, I hope here, a well-worn message that to grow, you're going to have to renew your mind. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That certainly includes how the world uses the tongue, which is anything but good. But if all the world's thoughts and values and wants and teachings and influences, they're getting piped into your heart and mind all day long, well, is it any wonder that that's what comes out of you? And you know the drill. You need to set your mind on things above. And the more you do so, you might just find yourself speaking like they do in heaven. Look, I, I think nothing like the tongue can make us cry out with Paul, Romans 7.24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death. We all stumble in many ways, like James says, but because of this, repent quickly, forgive freely. You, know, you apply that message from last week to forgive others as the Lord has forgiven us. We know we will sin in many ways, but press on in the pursuit of Christ-likeness. You should resolve, truly resolve in your heart of hearts to use your words to build up and not tear down. And one day in glory, our tongues will only be used to glorify God and to bless others. And we should start speaking with that heavenly tongue now. Let's commit to doing so. Let's take this to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning as it convicts us, reminds us of who you are, who we are in Christ and our hope. We behold the Savior and his teaching and how he's given us everything we need for life and godliness, how to live rightly before you. In Romans 12, we are to offer up our, our lives, our bodies as living sacrifices to you now. Knowing you've given us everything in Christ, you've sent the Savior to die, to pay for our sin, to rise again. Our, our new life is found in him. And it's our delight to offer our lives to you as sacrifice, to worship. But how can we exclude our tongues from that offering? We, I pray you convict us by your spirit to be resolved, to be renewed, and to, to grow. Christ has paved the way for that as well, giving us his spirit to dwell within us, to fill us. And so give us the mind of Christ. Fill us with your word. And we take more of your loves and hearts and desires and, and wants into us that, that when we speak, what would come out would be a word that edifies, a word that builds up, a word that evangelizes, a word that blesses. Help us in this as we resolve. Keep us free from, from sinful, harmful speech. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning. So may we, we dwell on that joyfully, that the Savior has already paid our debt. We'll never see that judgment, but still, and inspire us and convict us to walk as he walked and to speak as he speak. It's in his name we pray. Amen.